Hi, this is Naomi Elvinger. Welcome to episode three of my podcast. This podcast episode is called When Will I Finally Arrive in the Land of Israel? Um, before I start, I just want to say there's something really weird has happened with this podcast, which is that apparently people are actually listening to it, which is not something that I expected, but you are welcome. You are invited. Thank you for listening. Very glad to share with you. Today, I'm going to tell uh, an interesting story. It's, it's about a young lady. Um, her, her name is Naomi. Um, now, her um, her story is kind of quite interesting and, and maybe we'll question a bit later whether it's actually true. First, I'll tell you, suspend disbelief and we'll decide later, later whether this is a true story. This young lady, Naomi, she's, mm, I don't know, 19, 20 years old and she's uh, she lives in Sydney, Australia. And she's, uh, she's tall and kind of scrawny and very, very shy and... Mm, maybe a bit socially awkward, very, very quiet. And that's what makes what happens to her kind of hard to believe. Let me tell you. So Naomi was uh, enrolled in university in Sydney and she took a, she took her, the program was communications, right? We study PR and journalism and, and, um, and media, right? And in the first semester, there was a required course called cultural studies, which Naomi couldn't make head or tail of. She thought it was the most bizarre thing she had ever heard in her life. She just couldn't understand what they were talking about. Then came second semester and um, she didn't know what major to choose and cultural studies was still there. So she said, okay, I'll just continue with such cultural studies. So for a few weeks, she was trying valiantly to understand what on earth cultural studies was about without success. And it was probably like the fifth week of class and she was sitting in the lecture theater and the lecture was lecturer was blabbing on and on about something to do with cultural studies, which Naomi wasn't exactly sure what it was yet even after a whole semester in the course. Um, and then suddenly Naomi realized she could not stand this a minute longer. She just couldn't. She ran out of that lecture theater, like in the middle of the lecture. I don't know what the professor thought. Mm, out she went. She ran straight to the, uh, the office of the man who was like the course coordinator who helped the students find their majors and get settled in their courses. And his name was Graham. And she said, oh, please, Graham, I cannot be in cultural studies for a minute longer. Please, I need to switch right now to a different course. And Graham said, well, you know, um, we allow students to switch courses only until the third week of semester, and now we're entering the fifth week. So really, it's too late for you to, to switch courses. So Naomi said, oh, please, please, anything. I'll do anything, just no more cultural studies. So Graham, he thought about it and said, you know what? We have a course in, you know, in our faculty called Aboriginal Studies. It's like a major, right? Aboriginal Studies, this being Australia, Aboriginals being the native Indigenous people that lived in Australia before white people arrived. So we have this course, Aboriginal Studies. It's not very popular and we really need more students for it, you know. So if you'd be willing to switch to Aboriginal Studies, I'll let you switch even though it's not really allowed right now. So Naomi said, I'll take it. Anything, anything that's not cultural studies, sign me up. Graham said, no problem. So that's how Naomi became a student of Aboriginal studies, which is rather a random major for someone from her background. She's a, a nice Jewish girl from an upper middle class uh, suburb, probably never met an Aboriginal person in her life and never really thought about them too much. She learned about them in history at school, but they were them, right? She never, certainly never thought that that was going to become her major. And guess what? It did. It became her major in university. She actually quite liked learning Aboriginal studies. It was, just felt real. She knew what it was about, unlike some of the other stuff they were trying to teach her over there. And she, in some ways she related as a Jewish girl 
um, you know, her, her whole background, children of Holocaust survivors, you know, what Aboriginal people went through at the hands of white people in Australia was pretty devastating. And um, she she didn't talk much in class. She wasn't a big talker in general, but she liked just sitting back and listening to the stories and, and many of the students in the class were were of an Aboriginal background, the teachers were too. And it was interesting to just hear them talk. She liked Aboriginal studies, she was happy. After you know choosing to pursue that as her major randomly, um, she became more interested in learning more about Aboriginal people and getting to know them better. And she heard one time um, about an opportunity. There was there's an inner city suburb in Sydney called Redfern, which is a very bad neighborhood with a lot of uh, government housing developments. And um, they, she heard that they had the police run like a youth center there and they had this afternoon program where they help kids with their homework, local kids from the housing projects. So uh, she heard that they were looking for volunteers to work with the kids. So Naomi, hmm, Naomi was very shy, as I mentioned, and not really great with people, and certainly not with children. But you know, she felt strongly that this is something she wanted to do to get, you know, learn more about Aboriginal people. So she volunteered, and she started going there once a week to help kids who had no interest in doing their math homework to try and do their math homework. It was. It was good. But then this is when this story gets really weird. Okay. A few weeks after Naomi arrived at the police center, um, the woman who was running the program, you know, who was who recruited Naomi as a volunteer, suddenly decided that she was no longer going to live in Sydney and was moving to Nepal in very short order. And somehow through a chain of events that at this point is not clear to anybody, certainly not to Naomi, Naomi became the head of the program. So this is very strange. If you ever meet Naomi, certainly in those days, you would wonder how was it that the scrawny girl, Jewish girl, who never opens her mouth, is not particularly good at working with people, has no interest in social work or therapy or rehabilitation or children. How, how does she become the head of the program and the police center? an employee of the New South Wales Police eventually. But first she was a volunteer. It's kind of weird, um, but that's what happened. I don't know, there's something about Naomi that somehow she always seems to take over without really trying. She always ends up managing the world. And this story is kind of strange, but it is true. In fact, I'm sure you figured out by now, the Naomi in this story is of course me. Um, as I was then in my hometown of Sydney, Australia. And it's true, I did become the manager of the police centre's afternoon program for primarily for Aboriginal children who live in the neighbourhood. And wow, was I not qualified or suited or capable of that job. But I did it doggedly day after day um, while I was in university. Now, why am I telling you this story? Well, of course, because I was inspired by last week's parasha, Parsha's Matos Mase, right? Um, honestly, believe me, I was thinking up ideas for this podcast this week. I had an idea in my mind. It had to do with the three weeks. But no, when I read the parasha, this is what jumped out at me, this, to tell you this story. And the reason is because I was reading, you know, in Marseille, we read all about the 42 encampments of the Jewish people. They're listed from the time they left Egypt till they entered the land of Israel. They stopped at 42 places and they mentioned in various times in the story of the, of the Torah. And, um, and you know, that sometimes, you know, we know exactly what happened at the place and sometimes it's just mentioned briefly. But, you know, we know from many commentaries in Kabbalah that is these 42 encampments are very, very significant and they really like were all kind of like necessary places 
that the Jewish people needed to go through on the way to Eretz Israel. But it's kind of a lot of it's shrouded in mystery. I mean, I think actually, not that I learned Kabbalah, but I think Kabbalah really tries to delve into what these different encampments are all about. But I personally don't know Kabbalah. I don't really know what most of them are about. They're just a list. <laughs> and and it's kind of strange because that kind of feels like, you know, I feel like on my way to Eretz Israel, and the question is whether I've arrived or not, um, I've definitely had a whole bunch of encampments and many of them, I'm not really sure what they were about. <laughs> kind of like in uh, those encampments there. So it's very interesting that this is what came up for me when reading the parasha because this week, this week, you know, um, the nine days, it was actually three weeks um, in between, you know, before Tisha B'Av, that I arrived in Eretz Israel exactly 20 years ago in 2001. So this is my 20th anniversary of living in Eretz Israel. And um, so maybe that's why this came to this struck me so much when I was reading about the journey of the Jewish people into Eretz Israel in this last week's parasha. So here's the thing. I called this podcast, When Will I Arrive in Eretz Israel? Because sometimes I question whether I really arrived even up to 20 years. I'll talk to talk more about soon. Now I just want to go a bit ahead with the story of what happened to me in my unlikely situation as the um, the manager of the, the youth center in the afternoons. So here's a story. Um, okay, so I, I was supposed to be there every afternoon. I was ma- creating and managing programs for the kids. And these kids were some very troubled kids and from very difficult backgrounds, very low income and broken homes, you know, multiple fathers coming in and out of the homes if there was any father in the picture at all. And, um, yeah, very difficult, very difficult situation. And I'm not equipped for that at all. So, but I would try and run programs for them. I was, I'd help, I'd recruit volunteers to help them with their homework and I'd come with all kinds of ideas for arts and crafts. They were well-funded. You know, the problem of Aboriginal youth is a known problem in Australia and really no one knows what to do with it, do about it. There's not, there's not a, well, certainly 20 years ago, maybe they came up with something since then, but 20 years ago, no one had a clue how to solve it. And, um, and, but they knew how to throw money at it. And so they were throwing money at this police center and so I had money to buy arts and crafts stuff, and eventually they actually even hired me. That's how I became their employee. And um, and you know I was trying to do things for them. I remember at one point we made so many arts and crafts. We actually organized a little fair to sell them in the community. We had a community garden, and, and they built us a nice playground in the back. Like really, there was not a shortage of money. There was just a shortage of a clue about what to do with these kids to actually help them. So. Um, around this time, uh, it was actually, it was year 2000, and that was a big year in Sydney. It was the Olympics, right? So in Australia, people are really, really, really crazy about sports, and I grew up in that culture and yet never caught the bug. I never really understood what's so exciting about sport. I mean, especially the Olympics. People were so excited about the Olympics. They spent years, you know, fixing up the city and getting ready, and they were, like, polishing the sidewalks. You think I'm joking? They polished them, right? And they, they took all the homeless people. Not that there's so many homeless people in Sydney. It's not that kind of place, but there are a few. And they took them and they, like, moved them out to motels out west to, like, you know, so the city would be gleaming and perfect. And oh, it was just, it was like Mashiach had come to Sydney, Lahavdil, right? People were so happy and so excited about the Olympics. But trust me, I didn't care at all. So at the same time as the Olympics was getting started, um, you know, a group of Aboriginal activists decided, you know, like we're going, we want to make our point heard to the world. The eyes of the world are going to be on Sydney right now. And we want people to know about our plight. So they decided to set up like a tent camp 
in um in the you know very close in a very central area in Sydney in the park right next to the University of Sydney it's called Prince Albert Park and it's on a major road Parramatta Road that goes out of the city like towards where the Olympics facilities were the stadium and all the sports facilities and they decided to set up a camp there and Australians are like you know they, they you know they feel kind of bad for the Aboriginals and they don't want to do them any more damage so they even though they had just spent bazillions of dollars cleaning up the whole city and moving out the homeless people and polishing the sidewalks they let the aboriginals have their tent encampment right there in the middle of the city and it was a very open place i said to my friends guys let's go um let's go join camp camp with them one night like okay let's go on the weekend let's go on a sunday um and camp with them we'll set up a tent so me and a few friends did and we went and we camped there and then the next morning they got up Monday morning, I said, okay, you know, let's go home now. And I said, I don't want to go home. I said to one of the, my friends, I said, can I borrow your tent? You know, it's already set up. They're like, sure. So I stayed. Everyone else went home. And I stayed there through most of the Olympics, um, camping out. That was how I celebrated the Sydney Olympics, camping out in this park. It was in the by this roaring road, Parramatta Road. I used to imagine at night, like just listening to the roaring of those trucks, semi-trailers going down that road in the middle of the city. And you know what? I had a lovely time. My poor, poor mother. How can I ever apologize to, to my dear mother for what I put her through on many occasions? But this was probably one of the worst. I mean, at least I wasn't out there like, you know, taking drugs or whatever. I was just joining a bunch of ruffians. I mean, they're not ruffians. They're, they're just people who don't have a lot of direction in their life and they are Aboriginals. They don't have the best reputation for, you know, uh, being the kind of people you want your upper middle class teenage daughter hanging around with, not because, you know, you get my you, you get my mum's feelings. I don't need to explain it that much. I'm sorry, mum. But I was having the most wonderful time. I used to get up in the morning, go to work, come back to my tent home. Like really, I definitely I definitely think that you know that that experience of being part of that encampment for sure has to be a stop on my way to Eretz Israel. At this period, I'd already decided that I was going to be making Aliyah as soon as I finished university, um, and you know I was just waiting to finish. But meanwhile, um, I was having a wonderful time. I was getting more and more involved in the in the youth center and spending a lot of time there. Anyway, so at a certain point, I was nearing the end of my degree, and that meant I was planning to make Aliyah, move to Eretz Israel, and build a Jewish life over here. But as the date neared, I started to get cold feet. Right, um, almost like you could say, if I may make a comparison, how some of the Jewish people got cold feet. Um, got nervous about coming into Eretz Israel. though my story was really different. But still, even in last week's parsha, we have the story of um, of you know um, Gadim and, and um, two of the tribes wanting Reuben and Gad and wanting coming to Moshe Rabbeinu and saying like we decided we don't want to go into Eretz Israel. We want to stay over here. We have a lot of cattle. It's a nice place for cattle. We want to stay. So limited comparisons can be drawn here. But still, I'm telling you about my journey to Eretz Israel. Here it is. I I, I didn't have a Moshe Rabbeinu in my life. <laughs> And I didn't have direct connection to God. I was, but I was pretty serious. You would be surprised. I, I was not feeling that my dealings with the, you know, the Aboriginal community had anyway affected my commitment to, you know, being a growing Jew. In fact, I, I, I felt like it enriched me, and I, I was very, I, I definitely grew during that period in my commitment to being a growing Jew. I wasn't, it wasn't like pulling me away as far as I could see, but I had a problem. Like I was really feeling bad about moving to Israel, and um and making Aliyah and leaving behind the kids at the youth center because really there was no one else. Trust me, I wasn't good at the job, but there was just no one else. <laughs> and I felt bad. 
I felt bad about leaving them and I just I thought maybe I should stay a bit longer, you know, get things more established there or help or I don't know. I really got a lot of satisfaction out of the job. It was very meaningful to me. I don't know. It just was. Um, anyway, so I didn't know what to do. I think I mentioned this to my mum and uh, I can only imagine how she, my poor mum felt to hear this. But anyway, I think it was her idea that I go speak to um, the rabbi of the little shul that we used to enjoy going to in Belby Hill. His name is Rabbi Garari. And I wasn't the kind of person, like I was very, very introverted and I didn't often go and talk about my problems with anyone, but I decided I would go to Rabbi Garari, who's someone I had respect for, and um, lay out my problem to him, which is that, you know, I'd planned to go to Eretz Israel and get started with my life, but, you know, I had, I really felt like I was needed at the police center over there. So, I went, to, I went to him and I laid it out to him. And you can imagine Rabbi Garari. I mean, this, this young Jewish girl coming to him and saying, what should I do? Should I stay here and look after Aboriginal children in the, in the inner city? Or should I move to Eretz Israel and have a beautiful Jewish life? I mean, I'm sure that was like a really tough question for him to answer, right? I probably lost some sleep, right? No, you probably doesn't need to be Moshe Rabbeinu to know the answer to that question, right? <laughs> However, I thought he handled it quite sensitively. He didn't like just t tell me the stark truth that was like how crazy I would be to stay. He was quite nice about it, but he did gently suggest that, um, you know, that I'd probably want to think about, you know, starting my life and getting married and, you know, that would mean moving to Eretz Israel. And I took his advice to heart. And though it was kind of wrenching for me, I did leave Sydney. And that was exactly 20 years ago. So like I said, I was inspired by this week's parasha because, you know, I think that most stories we tell, especially 20 years on, like, you know, you realize, you, you get the point. You know why you were there. You see why you need, that needed to happen. You know, we love those stories. But I'm telling you a story that, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know what I got out of my Aboriginal experience and how I became involved in that community. And hopefully I made some sort of contribution because I certainly tried. Um, and I, but looking back, I don't know what it contributed to who I am. I just can't think of anything. I will tell you one last story from that period, um, which maybe gives a clue. Um, so it was towards the end of my time in in the youth center i can tell because they had a new fancy playground is involved in this and that was built at some point while i was there um so we're out in the playground behind the youth center in the middle of this really bad neighborhood and there was like a tall chain link fence around the playground and it was a very nice playground i think it was sponsored by nike i think that's how much money we had like seriously everyone was throwing money at us um, hopefully it actually did some good. Um, anyway, so we were in the playground and there were, I was like supervising a bunch of kids who were playing there, you know, between the ages of say six and 12. And um, one of the girls was an Aboriginal girl, let's call her Carrie. She was maybe seven, but she was built. She was built like a brick house. And um, anyway, she was sliding down the slide and I guess at the bottom she fell off the slide and she hurt herself. And then she sort of looked around her. Nobody was there watching her except me. And she looked at me. I don't know why she did this, but she suddenly said, you know, because she was hurt and she was sort of crying. She hurt her arm. She suddenly said, Naomi, you hit me, right? Naomi hit me. She started announcing to everyone, like, because she had this, I guess, wound on her arm. Um, and she started, and, like, everyone sort of crowded around. What, Naomi had hit Carrie? Naomi's allowed to hit Carrie. It's not okay to hit Carrie. 
they were like all looking for me to carry like this was terrible and just so happened that just at that moment on the other side of the chain link fence Carrie spotted her mother walking down the street right you know Carrie was built her mother was like seriously she was like a large woman right built and she was strolling down the street with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth aboriginal woman and Carrie calls her mother mom Naomi hit me. She hit me. Right. Everybody's gathered around now looking for me to her. No one else had seen what had happened. And I'm just like, uh, uh, I did not lay a hand on Carrie. Uh, exactly. I, I don't know exactly what happened to her. She fell off the slide, I guess. I don't know. And um, anyway, so I'm like, uh, -oh, what's the mother going to say? <laughs> what's going to happen now? So what does Carrie's mother do? She looks at me, she looks at Carrie and she says, Carrie, if you're going to play with the big kids, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> and then she kept walking and that was the end of that but then you know the other kids that were crowding around they 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 looked at Carrie and they said you know Carrie Naomi doesn't hit people Naomi would never hit someone um you know I don't Naomi never would and then the way they said that sort of said to me like the feelings they were having was like they didn't know if they were impressed or not that I don't hit people they weren't sure it was a good thing that I don't hit people is that something to be proud of? <laughs> but at that moment, I kind of felt like, um, like, I don't know, that I realized that these kids saw me and they saw me as someone, like I saw myself for a minute through their eyes. You know, I was always trying so hard to just like give them something, something, something of value, something of meaning that would have some impact. And I had absolutely no clue if I was succeeding, right? And and, but I just, for, for a split second, I think it was the only time I saw myself through their eyes as someone, I, I don't know, I think that they appreciated that I don't hit people. <laughs> I, but I'm not entirely sure. And um, I don't know, it was like a reflection of who I am. <laughs> the person who doesn't hit, that's my identity. <sighs> the title of this podcast episode is When Will I Arrive in Eretz Israel? Because even though I've lived here 20 years, I'm so glad that I live here. I love living in Eretz Israel, and I have been so to fulfill so many dreams here, and it is absolutely my home, and I do not think of Australia as my home. It's a very, very beautiful place for a visit, and I don't, I don't compare Israel and Australia. I'm not like, oh, but in Australia they have this, but in Israel they have that. Like, that kind of thinking is quite fatal to the happiness in life. I seem to be immune to it. I, I just, I, maybe it's because I came here when I was rather young. I never really had a life in, in Australia on my own. I was just a kid. I was someone else looking after me. I wasn't like an adult with a mortgage and a job. I had jobs, but not serious careers, right? I don't know why. I really feel at home in Eretz as well, and I'm so happy to be here. And yet, in some ways, I feel I haven't arrived yet. It's such a journey. I'm still on my journey. I mean, the... There's been so many more encampments in my life since then, and it, it's been wonderful, a wonderful journey. And I'm very, very grateful to have it in Eretz Israel. And it, it kind of made me think of last week's Parashat game because, um, like I said, that the certain tribes didn't want to come to Eretz Israel and they came to Moshe Rabbeinu to say that. And how does Moshe Rabbeinu react? He says to them, you know, if you don't come in, then your brothers are going to get nervous because they have a big job to do when they get there to clear out the land of all the people who are living there, right? And that's a big job and they're going to start getting nervous if you don't join. Are you really going to leave your brothers to do that by themselves while you have a nice time with your cattle over here? Um, and they assure him, they assure him that, no, no, 
they're quite adamant they they are going to they have this very long conversation it seems almost repetitive where they're like really confirming no no we are going to we're not going to settle in our homes until we're 100 sure that our brothers are settled in Eretz Israel and and I thought you know that's part that's part of this amazing satisfaction of being Eretz Israel is like it really is about throwing in your lot with the Jewish people and your brothers and sisters your fellow Jews and sharing the destiny of the Jewish people and being at the center of it it's not it's not always easy but it certainly is so so meaningful and in a way that maybe that's why I just never never even connected to that experience of working with Aboriginal people as much as I wanted to as much as I was willing to do anything for them and even to this day 20 years later I just can't see what the point was <laughs> and maybe it's just because they're not my people and these are my people and I'm so so grateful 20 years in Eretz Israel Anyway, that's it for this week's podcast. You are invited to subscribe or do whatever you want so that you don't miss out on another episode next week. See you then.